I want to tell you a little bit about myself and my family so that you know who I am. All right, so there should be some slides going up here about my, uh, with my family's pictures on them. So this is my family here. They're sitting in the uh, seats next to you over here. So they, this summer, we went out to Colorado, and we climbed what's called a 14er. Anybody ever climbed a 14er? It means you climb a mountain that's 14,000 feet, all right? And so right here in front in blue, we've got my wife, Kristen, next to her in the green, uh, my daughter, Maddie, who's 16. She's a junior here at Carmel, and in the bright pink, uh, Abby, my other daughter, who's a freshman at Carmel. All right. Uh, they are terrific. They are not my whole family. There's another piece of my family, and this is Wilson. All right. Now, don't let this picture fool you, because it looks like he's always this nice and calm, and actually, he was just waiting for us to come back from Colorado, I think. But this same bed that you see him sleeping so nicely on in front of the fireplace, like a perfect little golden retriever picture, Right at about 8 o'clock every night, becomes a toy. And he starts tearing into that bed with all of his energy out of nowhere, just going crazy. I won't tell you all the things he likes to do to the bed, um, as you guys have seen dogs do, right? And within 15 seconds, we have to, somebody has to jump up off the couch, take the bed, hide it in the closet for the night. It comes out the next day so he can sleep on it. And this is a daily ritual. I don't know why he does it. We don't know why, but he... It's got something with that bed. All right, so we've been talking about fear. And the last three weeks, this church has gone through a series on do not fear. Josh did a great job kicking us off, talking about as sons and daughters of Christ, what that means for us as we think about fear and faith. The early wines the next week talked about fear and parenting, and Josh last week came in and talked about fear and finances. So a few weeks ago when he came to me and said, hey, Andy, would you finish us up in this series on fear and just talk about something on fear. That was it. That's all he gave me. Good luck. Here's the Bible. Find something on fear. Took me about three weeks to figure it out, what I wanted to actually speak on. But what I started to ask myself the question of is, what do people fear the most? Like, what are our biggest fears? And I started thinking through uh, my family members, right? So Kristen, my wife, fears spiders, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to show pictures up here because that wouldn't go well later on today. Um, but she fears spiders, and she also fears heights. So you can imagine when we were climbing the 14er this summer, and it took us about five hours from the base of the mountain where we started to the top of the 14er, because we started at about 12,000 feet. Um, most of the way up, she is walking like this, looking down, look down, look down, don't look up, don't look, you know, don't look at the peripheral or whatever. And we get up there and she does not want to look around. The three of us are like, yeah, this is awesome. And the girls are standing too close to the edge for her. And she's just looking down. Going down the mountain was even worse, right? Because when you go down, you can see everything in your peripheral vision. And she was just staying focused. Uh, my older daughter, Maddie, is afraid of snakes. I don't know if you guys, anybody here afraid of snakes? Right? So we got spiders, the biggie, we got snakes, we got heights. My younger daughter, Abby, you know, actually I thought about this for a couple weeks and it was hard to find something she was afraid of. She's a little bit fearless actually, which creates great fear in me. I think the largest thing she's afraid of is not having her iPhone. <laughs> right? Most kids at that stage, I mean, that's the one punishment we can do for Abby is take away the iPhone. Now myself, my greatest fear in life is, I don't know if we have any claustrophobics in here, right? Fear of tight spaces. I am a claustrophobic, and I am afraid of tight spaces. There are some elevators I cannot get in, 
There's, unless I'm in on my own, with no one else in the elevator with me, and some elevators I won't even do that in. There are times when you get on, a, on an airplane flight, and I cannot sit next to the windows, because if you sit next to the windows, then you got like two or three people next to you, it starts to get hot, the sun's beaming in, I mean, I got to be on the aisle, preferably exit row, preferably that would be the only seat on the plane, and there would be open windows on the plane, right? Um, to the point where, you know, my family and I take a yearly trek to Kings Island, like most of, the, most of us here, you know, in crazy Midwest land. And we, take the, we do these roller coasters, right? And we love roller coasters. The girls have no fear of the roller coasters. They haven't since they were born, which isn't great for my wife, right, who's afraid of heights. So we get into the roller coaster, and Kristen is taking the things over her shoulders, and she can't pull the thing down tight enough, right? It's like digging into her gut. Myself, who am afraid of tight spaces, when they put the thing over you, I'm doing this with my arms, holding that thing out as far as I can possibly get, so that when they come down and do the little extra push right at the last second and make it even tighter, they can't go, because I want to be able to get out if I have to. In the middle of the ride, upside down, whatever it is, if I need to get out, I gotta be able to get out. My youngest daughter, Abby, who's not afraid of anything, has got Kristen putting her arm over in front of her the entire ride. You, you guys have been there, right? So I'm claustrophobic, and this we'll talk a little bit about later, but I hate tight spaces. I don't know what you guys are afraid of. I don't know what your biggest fears are in life. I do know this. One of the fears that we all have, and it's probably the biggest fear that most of us deal with on a daily, hourly, weekly basis, whatever you want to say is, what happens next? What happens tomorrow? What happens five minutes from now? It's what I call the fear of uncertainty. Right? What happens? What if tomorrow brings trouble? What if tomorrow brings disappointment or tragedy or pain, right? Embarrassment. I'm reading the list up here on the screen, as you can tell, because I can't remember my own list. Um, but I can't necessarily see that far. Distress, suffering, rejection, all the things that we're scared might happen next. What if that's what happens next? I don't know what happens next. I'm uncertain, right? One of the biggest fears that paralyzes many people and we worry about on a daily basis is this fear of uncertainty. And it's nothing that goes away as followers of Jesus Christ either. It's there on a daily basis. No matter how small or how big these uncertain things are, we are afraid of uncertainty. We don't like to not know what's next. We want to be able to prepare for it. We want to be able to look for it and you know what I mean, whatever it might be, right? You might have uncertainties when it comes to things like your health, your job, your career. You might have uncertainties when it comes to kids and parenting. What school are they going to go to? What college? What job are they going to get? Am I going to have kids? Can we have kids? Is there that special someone out there for me? Is there that relationship? We have fear. We all just did Thanksgiving with families. One of the worst times in the world, right, for some people, because you've got to be with your family, the best and the worst at the same time. You're going to go into the holiday season where there's a ton of uncertainty. Many people will drive home for holidays just with that 
feeling in their gut thinking, man, now I got to go hang out with mom or dad or brother or sister, whoever it is for a couple days. What's that going to be like? Right? We have all these just modern, everyday things in life that we're uncertain of. The nice thing is, God, like many of our fears, wants to speak into that, has spoken into it, and has some things that he can help us on. And what we're going to do this morning, real quick, is I'm going to look at a passage of scripture. It's actually a psalm, where the psalmist talks about the fear of uncertainty and the fear of what's coming next for them. But to really be able to get the most out of this psalm, I'm going to have to back up and tell you another quick story in the Old Testament because the psalm is actually written about this story. So if you don't understand the story, the psalm's pretty and it's nice and it uses words you guys will be familiar with because it's songs that we sing every week. But it doesn't have half the meaning if you don't back up and see where it came from and why it's there. So I'm going to back you up a little bit to King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the ruler of the southern kingdom of Israel, or Judah. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom about 700 years before Christ. All right? And there were many different kings in this time. Some were good, some were bad. And it kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth if you read through the story of Israel. Hezekiah was one of the good ones. He was actually one of the great kings. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, 5 to 7, it says this about Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. All right, Hezekiah was one of the good ones. He was one of the great ones. The problem was, in this time, there was this growing empire of Assyria that wasn't too far away, and it was the empire of the day, and it was slowly basically conquering the entire known world at the time. Assyria, led by kings and Echareb, would come into every nation and every people group and come in and just basically destroy them, take them over, assimilate them, whatever it took, and little by little, Sennacherib was just accumulating nations, accumulating geography, accumulating the people, right? And Israel and Hezekiah knew this was coming. This was a pending danger. And actually, he came closer and closer to the point where he finally had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and was closing in on Judah, where Jerusalem is, the capital city. And Jerusalem, the capital city, is surrounded by a great wall, right? And so what it, Sennacherib did and the Syrians did is they brought 185,000 troops and basically surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 troops and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And what that meant was basically they were just going to hang outside and wait and wait them out because they knew eventually the city would run out of supplies. They'd run out of food and water. And then when it was time to attack, they'd be easy to attack. And in one of the historical accounts, King Zennacherib talks about the city of Jerusalem like, they were, like he had caged them like a bird. And he was just waiting to pounce on the city of Jerusalem. So this is where Hezekiah is in, his, in this moment in the nation of Israel at this time. And so Zennacherib writes up this 
basically this letter and sends it into Hezekiah, and it's basically, here's your surrender terms. And I'm sure the terms were very one-sided, but basically, I'm either going to come in and destroy you or you're going to completely surrender, and this is how it's going to go. And he sends in this letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, remember, is a faithful king and a follower of God. And he says, no, I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to give in. And what he does is he takes this letter, he runs to the temple, he spreads out the letter in the temple, and he prays to God. And in 2 Kings, this is what he prays. Verse 19, Hezekiah says, It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Hezekiah prays to God and says, I know that the Assyrians are destroying everybody, but they're destroying all these countries where their gods are made of stone and wood and they're man-made. They're not really gods. You are the true God. And I don't care that the fact that this entire army is surrounding us. You're going to deliver us from them. So the Lord responds in verse 32 and says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. And then he goes on in 35 and says, sorry, I'm going fast for you guys. That, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So Hezekiah goes to the temple, prays, lays out the letters and says, I don't know what you're going to do, God, but you're going to deliver us. And God says, you're right, I am going to deliver you. They're not going to step foot inside the city of Jerusalem. And that night, God sends his angel. His angel comes down and wipes out the entire army, 185,000 of them. And they wake up the next morning, and there's just dead bodies strewn everywhere. And of course, the Assyrians head home that are left. So that story is what backs up or is the foundation behind this psalm that the psalmist writes. And in Psalm chapter 46, which is what we're going to read this morning and look at, and if you have a Bible, turn to it. If you don't know where Psalm is, typically the easiest way is just open your Bible in half, and you'll probably get to the Psalms. Then go back a little bit to chapter 46. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. It'll be up on the screens next to me. And what chapter 46 is, is the author, it's a kind of commemorating what happened back in this day of Hezekiah and the Israelites and celebrating what God did for them. And the Jews today still celebrate this experience that they went through and this deliverance that God gave them to and as we look at it today, we also can use it to not just celebrate, but to learn from what do we do when there is this pending uncertainty, especially when the pending uncertainty seems like trouble. <clears throat> and believe me, most of us probably have never experienced a pending uncertainty as extreme as what Hezekiah was, was experiencing. 
That doesn't mean our uncertainties that are coming aren't important to God. It just means he can handle them, and anything as extreme as what Hezekiah handled. Psalm chapter 46, God just gives us three simple promises, and that's what we're going to go through. And the first promise is this, God is our refuge. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. What comes to your mind when you think of a refuge? When you think of a place of refuge? I don't know about you guys, some of the things that I think of are things like um, storm shelters, panic rooms, uh, Megan's got some fun pictures of some different things that people have created. I think of the president jumping in Air Force One and being flown off to some mountain in Colorado that none of us know where it is and how to get into, right? Um, you think of, you know, scenes and movies of like tornadoes coming in and these people have these storm shelters under their house, right? These places of refuge. Um, I don't, oh yeah, that's a good one. I, that looks like something that my daughter made in Minecraft or something a couple years ago. Um, but places of refuge, places where you can go to be safe, to get away, to you know, create this little place where nothing and no one can get to you, right? In the scriptures, God gives us four or five different images of how he tries to explain to us places of refuge. He talks about the fact that his, God is a refuge like a rock, David talks a lot of that, about that in the Psalms because David, when King Saul was chasing him everywhere, would hide in the caves and in the rocks, and God was his refuge in the rock. He talks about a refuge like a shield, and this is like a warrior and literally the shield that is shielding you from the enemy arrows, or a refuge like a tall tower. You can't watch a movie where you know, there weren't the old tall towers, and this was a place where you were safe. The higher you could get, the farther you could away you could get from your enemies. They couldn't shoot at you up there. They couldn't get to you, right? He uses pictures of being a tower. He uses images of um, being a shelter. He uses images of being a fortress. And one of the most interesting images he uses, I think, is images like wings. You know, all these other things, you got rocks and shields and towers and fortresses, right? And then he's like, yeah, and I'm a refuge like wings. And you're like, okay. How is that a refuge for me? And the picture that he gives in scripture is a, is a picture of literally a bird's wings. And there's a story told that I'm sure some of you have heard before where there was this great fire, right, in Yellowstone National Park. And the fire had come in and just, you know, kind of scorched everything. And this is the aftermath of the fire. The firefighters had finally gotten control of the fire and put out all the little embers and all that kind of stuff. And they were walking around and making sure that everything was completely under control. There were no left, nothing left, no ashes that were going to spark up or whatever. And they come across this very horrific-looking bird that is just charred, his feathers are charred or whatever, and they don't know what to do with it. It's kind of there, and people can see it as they walk by, and then, so whatever. One of the firefighters start, starts to kind of sweep it to the side so that it won't be viewed, won't be visible, right? 
And underneath of this bird come three little ducklings or chicks or whatever they're referred to, right? And in Psalm 91, verse 4, he says, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. And it's a picture of what a mother bird does and what that mother bird did for her chicks during the fire to keep them protected, right? And God uses this picture in scripture to tell us in these times of possible trouble, in these times of uncertainty, I can be your refuge. Whether that's a rock or a tower you need or a fortress you need, I don't know what you need right now. Or maybe it's just you need to hide under my wings like a baby bird would do her mother hen, right? But I can be your place of refuge. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. In the midst of this horrible situation, when the Israelites were afraid of their death the next morning, any given morning they could wake up and it would be all over, right? The psalmist is saying, God was come to them, and in verse one, God is our refuge and our strength. An ever-present help in trouble. And these images of refuge, they're images, they're illustrations. In and of themselves, that's all they are. But what they do for you and I is they give us mental, emotional ammunition that we need in those times of uncertainty to say, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen next to me. I don't know what's going to happen next to my kids. I don't know what's going to happen next to our country. I don't need to. You know, that sometimes you get the worst possible advice from everybody around you when you're in these times of uncertainty. Have you ever noticed everybody around you says, don't worry about it. Everything will be okay. Well, that's BS. Because it's not always okay. The next day isn't always great. That's not what God promises in Scripture, right? What he does promise is in those moments of uncertainty and possible trouble or hardship, whatever's around the corner, I'm there, and you can find refuge in me. Whether you need a tower, whether you need wings, whether you need a fortress, whatever it is at the moment, I am your refuge at the moment. Tomorrow may not be awesome, but at least I'll be there as your refuge. And that's what he said to the Israelites that night and every night as they went to sleep. Externally, he's our refuge. And then he says, internally, I'm also your strength. So let's look at verses four through six. The second promise that he gives us is this. God is our refuge. God is our river. What does that mean? Let's look at verse four. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the, earth's melt, and the earth melts. So every great city in the world that you can probably think of typically has a great river. Paris, London, New York, Chicago. Think of a great city that probably isn't near or have a great river. And what's interesting in this passage is the psalmist is saying, God is our river, and it makes glad the holy city of God. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of God. 
But what's really odd about Jerusalem, if you guys know anything about the geography, it is nowhere near a city. I mean, a river or a lake or a sea. The Sea of Galilee is probably the closest thing to it, but it's pretty far away. It is nowhere near a river. So what in the world is the psalmist talking about when he says God is our river and he will make glad the city of God? And this is where the story gets fun. We go back to the story of Hezekiah, right? And back in the story of Hezekiah, we're going to jump to a different, you don't have to go there, but in 2 Chronicles, it says this. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. So what happened is this. This is really cool. For any of you guys who are engineers, you're going to get a kick out of this. All right? There was no river anywhere near Jerusalem. The Assyrians are coming, and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. So Hezekiah gets together with his engineers and says, we've got an issue. If they surround us, we're in big trouble. We have no water supply. So what he did is he got together, and they created what is now called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's a literal physical tunnel that you can, well, it's hard to go see because they protect it and you can't get there today. But it's a literal physical tunnel. And what they did is they went outside the city of Jerusalem and there were some springs under the ground. And they blocked off those springs and channeled them back to the city of Jerusalem underneath the city, hundreds of feet below the city, and I can't quite explain what's all going on in this diagram. You guys can look at it later if you'd like. But literally, they, they channeled this tunnel. It's about 1,700 feet long, all the way down, hundreds of feet under the city, so that during the entire siege that was going on, they had a water supply. So the Assyrians, thinking they're big boys, coming to town, and Israel is a sitting duck because they got nothing they can do, have no clue that the Israelites actually, and what they did was crazy. They didn't have enough time to do it right, which was to start at one end of the tunnel and dig all the way. They started at both ends and tried to meet each other, hundreds of feet under the ground. Um, there's, I think we've got some pictures of actually what this tunnel looks like on the inside. <clears throat> um, and she can kind of scroll through a couple of those pictures just to kind of give you an image of how big the tunnel was. It, it was an amazing undertaking. and I can't fathom how they did this how they actually dug this tunnel 7,800 feet long so that underneath the city of Jerusalem, there would actually be this hidden water supply that they could tap into. So on the outside, the enemy, Saul, you're in trouble, you got nothing, I'm gonna sit here till you get weak. And on the inside, the people knew they had an unlimited water supply. So the application is easy, right? If you think about it. As followers of Christ, in times of trouble, in times of uncertainty, the enemy thinks he's got you. The enemy thinks he's got you exactly where he wants you and cornered. And you got nowhere to go, right? What he can't figure out and he's never been able to figure out is the Holy Spirit. What he can't figure out is if you're a follower of Christ, you actually have an unlimited supply of life-giving, refreshing water the image that's used over and over in the scriptures, right? At your disposal via the Holy Spirit. The enemy can't get to it. The enemy can't see it. The enemy doesn't know how to stop its flow. It's just there. 
So the psalmist says to us, in your times of uncertainty, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. God will help her in the morning. The next morning, you're going to wake up, they're all dead. Nations, other nations are in uproar and other kingdoms are falling, but he lifts his voice and the earth melts. So cool, isn't it? God is our refuge. God is our river. And the third promise is this. God is our fortress. So what you do if you're a person in this time, if you're one of the Jews that just got delivered by God in Hezekiah, you are singing praises to God, aren't you? The next morning you're waking up, you see all these dead bodies, you're coming up with songs that you've never come up before. And you're coming up with worship and words and things. And the rest of this psalm, the last stanza, that's all it is, is a worship song to God of what he just did for them. And I'm not going to pick apart every part of it. Verse 7 says this. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's really interesting in that. Verse 7 and 11 are exact verses. They're parentheses around, they're the chorus of the song. This is where a mighty fortress is our God, if you've ever heard that song comes from, right? The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's on either side. And then in between, they say, this is what he just did for us. This is how he just delivered us. And what's really cool about that, he says, come and see what the Lord has done. And in verse 10, he says, the only response that we as followers of Christ have when God delivers us from that uncertainty or that possible trouble, or when he meets us in that pain, is to say, be still and know that I am God. So I told you early on that I'm claustrophobic, right? Well, when I was studying this and taking a look at those pictures of the tunnel that they built, a 1,700-foot-long tunnel that at most of the time they said sometimes was only 100 centimeters wide, it's not very wide. Right? We're talking kind of going through sideways if you're trying to get through. I started to get a little claustrophobic just thinking about the tunnel. Now, with all fears in life, there are times in life where we can handle those fears a little better, right? Well, typically, the times where we have a little bit more courage than other times, at least for men, are when we're in our young men's stage of like high school and college. And so there were some days in high school where I had courage that I don't know where it came from. I took the advanced PE class in high school, and one of the things my advanced PE teacher wanted to do was take us all spelunking, or what we would call caving, right? I'm a high school senior boy, there's girls in the class and other boys, whatever. I gotta be cool, I gotta be strong. And he's like, and by the way, if anybody doesn't wanna go on this field trip, that's fine, you guys can stay behind. Next week, we're all gonna go caving. Yeah, like I'm, like I'm gonna throw in the towel there. And say, so, yeah, can I get a pass? I'll just sit in study hall, right? No, I'm going to go caving. I can handle this. So I sign up, 
We show up at the cave in southern Indiana. I don't know how a teacher got away with this, right? Today, there's no way you'd be able to take 30 kids caving in southern Indiana, right? We got all the gear, our three sources of light, and the helmet, all the stuff you're supposed to have when you go caving, right? And literally walk into the mouth of this cave, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing pretty good. It's a, we can all kind of stand in here. This is pretty cool. There's a cave. We got some stalag something, mites and tights. Can never remember which direction they're coming from, right? And I'm saying, all right, so far so good. And then all of a sudden the teacher's like, okay, this is the entrance to the cave. Now where we start is over there. And he points to this little hole, like down in the corner of the cave that to me looks like a mouse hole. And he says, that's where we're all going in. And I was, at that moment in time, if you guys have fear, all the things that normally happen to a person when that starts to happen inside of me, like the blood, the, all, the mind is going, I am losing it, thinking, all right, all of us are now going to crawl into this little hole and going to go caving for the next couple hours in there, right? But I'm still a stupid high school boy that thinks he's cooler than school, and I'm going to go in that stupid hole, right? And so I wait, and I was, tr- I was trying to be strategic. I got one of my good buddies with me, and we're trying to think this through because he knows that I'm scared to death right now. And so there's a teacher at the front and a teacher at the back. I get at the very back right in front of the teacher because I know if we get stuck in the cave, there can't be many people behind me. If they are, I'm getting hurt and they're getting hurt because I'm getting out. I'm not going to be stuck and I'm going to go through them to get out of the cave because that's where I came from, right? And so we're crawling along at first and we're on our hands and knees and then we get to the point where we're literally on our bellies going like this and the walls are right there and there's about this high and I start to lose it, absolutely lose it. And I wish it would make a much cooler story for this morning, but I wish I could say that at that point in time I was a you know, follower of Christ and I sat there and I prayed and the Holy Spirit just came over me and I could post it on Instagram that everything was great, I could take this little selfie in the ca- No, that's not what I did, right? Though I was a follower of Christ at the time, I, no one had taught me this lesson yet. I didn't know that at that point in time I could find refuge in the Holy Spirit and try to ask for peace. I knew I was scared to death. And the only thing I could do because I was stuck, I had to go forward, is just for a few minutes put my head down, face in the clay and the mud, and just say, you got to get through this. And for the next five hours, I got through it. And then I walked out of the cave and said, I'm never doing this again, ever. So all that to say is, has nothing actually to do with what we're talking about other than the fact that I just thought about caving when I saw that. But I know that in that moment, if I would have been able to call upon, be still and know that I am God, that's all we need to do. That's all we need to remember is that he promises us to be our refuge, to be our river, and he will be our fortress. And if we just remember that, that will help us get through the next day, whatever happens next. You know, God doesn't promise you, doesn't promise any of us that there's not going to be trouble. There's not going to be uncertainty, right? What he promises us is that in that moment, he will be there for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for the opportunity to share. Thanks for your promises that you give us. Lord, we know that tomorrow is uncertain. 
And we know that, we, we don't know what happens tomorrow. We know you're in control. We know that we can turn to you as our refuge. And I pray that no matter what anybody is going through in here this morning, uh, and I don't know what, we're going, what anyone is going through. I don't know the types of uncertainty that are waiting for everybody when they get home in a few minutes, when they show up for work tomorrow or not work, when they visit family and friends. I don't know the uncertainties. But I do know those of us here that are followers of you have the promises to know that you are there for us. We can choose to fear or we can choose to have faith in that. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.